that's 10,000 families with kids growing up without a grandparent. Like, why do we think that's just an okay thing, especially when the the interventions are things that we can do to really dramatically cut that down and are not super expensive? Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Monkey Louie, the International Features Editor for the BMJ. The winter flu season has, for time immemorial, been when we expect the death rate from respiratory diseases to spike. It was a fact of nature and we just had to accept it. Then along came COVID and suddenly we were trying our best to reduce deaths from a different virus. And that made some question why we had been accepting of flu deaths for so long. Is it time to rethink our whole approach to the season? In our podcast, we want to give you an insight into the science, the forces, and the people shaping the health of our world. And in this episode, we're going for all three. Ashish Jha is Dean of Brown University School of Public Health, and from 2020 until earlier this year, was the White House's COVID-19 response coordinator. In this interview, I talked to Ashish about living with COVID and why he's actually quite hopeful for the future of respiratory disease prevention. One quick note, we had to use the backup recording from my voice, but you'll hear our guest loud and clear. You know, when I came in and as I started the job, I met with the president, met with some of the other senior leaders at the White House to kind of lay out what did we want to try to accomplish um, in the next phase of the And for me, it was very important that we start thinking about what will life need to look like after the emergency phase ends? How do we not just snap back to where we were in 2019, but really take the lessons of the pandemic and move it forward? Um, There were certain things that were very concrete, like I wanted to make sure we had plenty of testing available. That had been a constant problem throughout the pandemic in the United States. And I wanted to get to a point where testing was abundant. It was widely available, easy to access. we had just uh, had the authorization of, of Paxlovid as a therapy. Uh, I was I thought the data on it was very compelling, and I wanted to make sure that was widely available and very accessible to people. Um, we had been using a single vaccine, the original formulation. I knew that we needed to make changes. I wanted to make sure there was a good process for updating vaccines, not just for the time that I was there, but that we had a process for the long run. So there was a set of things. And then the last, but certainly not least, um, was the fact that we had a strategic national stockpile uh, for tests and gowns and gloves that was largely empty um, because we had not stockpiled it effectively when the Trump administration was in office. And in that, uh, and we'd been using a lot of it in the first year of the Biden administration. So I wanted to make sure that whenever I left, I left a strategic national stockpile that was quite full uh, to manage future challenges. And those are all things that, you know, we, we got accomplished. And we also set in place real programs for developing new vaccines, new therapeutics, uh, launched something called Project Next Gen. So there was a set of areas where I feel like we made real progress. Last point is I did did think it was important that we get out of the emergency footing and put COVID into a broader context of respiratory infections that we have to learn to manage. Um, So I, I feel like those things largely work. And we can, you know, quibble around the edges on some of those things, but I think those largely work. 
One of the things I also hoped to do, where I feel like I have some real regrets, is, you know, COVID, I mean, it's obviously very political in every country, but it had become strangely partisan in the U.S. In my view, COVID in general, vaccines and treatments in particular, and I thought that the partisanization of vaccines, for instance, was very harmful because what began as partisan views of, of COVID vaccines, I worried would spill over into partisan views of every other vaccine. And one of my goals had been to try to departisanize it or, or make vaccines and treatments much more bipartisan, something that, that did not feel like it had a political angle to it. And while I tried to sort of and I certainly try to do a lot of work in the background, meeting with groups, meeting with political leaders from across the political spectrum. I don't feel like I made as much progress on that as I had wanted. And I have real regrets about that because at the end of the day, if vaccines become something that gets tied to political identity, you're a Democrat, you're pro-vaccines and you're Republican, you're not. I mean, again, I don't think that's, I think that's a very harmful framing uh, for public health. And um, and I worry a lot about that uh, for our country. It's a pretty big it's a pretty big ask though for even one man in such a position to deal with something like polarization and partisanship because it deals with all the things like misinformation and so on. So yeah, I wasn't going to solve it for everything, but I was I was hoping I might make some progress on at least for vaccines and treatments. Um, you did make a good point about, you know, getting the framework in place for where we are now, which is living with COVID. What do you think we've um, we've learned certainly about res respiratory infections that we could apply elsewhere in other ways, not just to, you know, future yeah. pandemics, but obviously just the, the everyday epidemics and infections yeah. that we have? You know, I go back to my life as a clinician, and every time I would go into clinical service over the holidays, this is before the pandemic, um, hospitals would be full uh, of patients who are suffering from complications of flu and RSV and all of the uh, implications, you know, during bad respiratory seasons, the healthcare system would get really, really stretched. And I always remind people that COVID uh, doesn't didn't make flu and RSV go away. Like we've just added one more really complicated, dangerous respiratory infection to already the flus and the RSVs and others. So now we have a much bigger challenge, which is we have a healthcare system that I think is going to struggle year after year after year in taking care of people during the during the winter season. So there are lessons from COVID that help us do things. So I think, for instance, the availability of testing. We need to develop rapid tests for flu and RSV as well, so that you don't have to have people going into emergency rooms or going into their doctor's office to get a test for a respiratory infection. Now, those should be done at home. That's a lesson from COVID that we should be able to apply. Um, we, you know, we built in the US, because we don't have a health system the way the National Health Service does, um, we built a lot of programs around test to treat where you don't, if you don't have access to regular primary care, you can go uh, to a local pharmacy, get tested, get treated, Again, trying to unburden the regular healthcare system. I want to see that expanded to other respiratory infections. So there are ways that we learn how to manage COVID that I actually think we should be expanding to include flu RSV um, in a way that reduces the burden on the health system, obviously reduces burdens on people, 
uh, and just lets our healthcare system be much more functional during the during the winter season. I think we can do that, but we've got to really uh, drive implementation of those strategies. Um, one thing that's kind of related to that you mentioned is is the the testing and the surveillance. And this is certainly something that worries me personally. In that, I mean, not just in America and in in the UK, but a lot of places just aren't doing as much surveillance uh, as they are. And even if you know private testing is available, I mean, there's a row right now in the in the kind of UK about how much to encourage or not encourage it because people are worried about people being off work, even doctors uh, and so on. Um, how do you feel about the level of surveillance and what, what yeah. do you think we need to be doing? There, there are three sets of things, I think, that I want to just sort of disentangle. There is passive surveillance through things like wastewater surveillance, which I feel reasonably good about because it doesn't require behavior change. It doesn't require any kind of new investments. It's a steady state investment that actually lets us track uh, COVID, and that's where we've used it, but I would like it to be expanded to other respiratory and other types of infections, just to have a sense of what's happening in communities. That, I think we've got the infrastructure, we've built it, we've got to continue funding it, and we should expand it. You know, then there is the question of testing as surveillance of a population, the kind of things that uh, the UK did that the US actually never did. I mean, we're sending kids to people's homes, getting them to swab it and send it back. Um, I think there's a lot of value in that kind of thing, because the, the wastewater surveillance tells you at a community level how much infection there is. It doesn't tell you anything about who's getting infected, what who's not, who's being most affected. So I think having a baseline level of surveillance that lets you understand which communities, which populations uh, is really valuable. And my sense is most people are pulling back from that and not doing that on a basis. And then that sort of gets us to the third part, which is just general availability of testing for people who have respiratory symptoms. There are a lot of people who say, well, why even bother? What's the point? We never used to test for flu before. Why are we testing for flu now? And my, you know, and my thought on this is, first of all, um, we have treatments. So if you get flu, you can get, uh, and especially if you're high risk, you can get treated for it if you get tested early. Certainly that is true for COVID. So there is a good reason to test. Um, second, if you have flu, and you have symptoms, you should probably stay home for a bit. Um, you know, we could talk about how long and should you have to test negative, but even if you just stayed home during your most symptomatic period, it would dramatically reduce the amount of spread that happens in a population. And while, you know, like while we don't have to go into to thinking about things like lockdowns and the kind of stuff that we had to do uh, for periods of time and, and during COVID, like in general, we should have less spread of respiratory infections it's disruptive, it's harmful, it kills the vulnerable. Like we have, there's no reason to swing the pendulum all the way to the other way and say, let everybody get infected over and over again. If there are some basic, simple things we can do, like make testing widely available that lets people isolate at home uh, when they're most contagious, that just is a good thing for, for society. And I think we should be encouraging that. I mean, the barrier to that is, of course, you know, it's, it, it's, Part of the reason for the drop in surveillance and other things is the, is the kind of funding available. And I mean, how do you feel about the uh, slightly understandable one of many people, including those with the purse strings, to kind of move on from the pandemic and therefore to to try and claim back some budget uh, yeah. from that? Well, I, I I I am sympathetic to the argument that you can't be spending at the level that you had to spend at the in the worst days of the pandemic. That is certainly true. Um, my view on this is is twofold. 
Um, first, some amount of, of spending on this stuff is really smart fiscally. I mean, because if you prevent uh, spread of the infection, even a little bit, you're going to have fewer people missing days of work. You're going to have fewer days of kids being out at school. Uh, you're going to have fewer hospitalizations for your seniors. And, and that all is savings to society. So some of this is just, you don't want to be sort of penny wise, pound foolish, as they say, right? And, and so there's an important, and then there is like investing in health does cost money. And uh, and again, we're not talking about a kind of a level of surveillance that was going on in the worst days of the pandemic, but we're saying a basic level of surveillance uh, is good and having access to, to free or, or very cheap tests for people is a useful thing to keeping population healthy. Last point also is it is also important for surveillance for new infections or new diseases that might pop up, or if you get a new variant of COVID, you want to be you want to see that as an as early as possible. So there's a lot of reasons to do it. Again, I think you can cut back a lot from the from the days when we were having to spend a lot of money on this. Uh, but I think completely dismantling the surveillance efforts uh, and completely dismantling the ability of people to get access to cheap or, or free tests is just it's not very wise either from a health or a financial point of view. Um, you also mentioned um, talking about. Wu and other respiratory viruses, they do, of course, there is a mortality uh, risk as well. Certainly in the UK, tens of thousands of deaths from flu every year. And there is very much in the move to try and get past COVID and normalize it that we accept, again, tens, hundreds of thousands of deaths. If you look into globally, you know, close, yep. close to a million and so on, deaths from COVID. I mean, what is your feeling around that? I mean, it's obviously the multifaceted kind of debate. There has to be a, a sort of line drawn at some point. But how do we, as you know, people who work in and around healthcare, sort of square this? You know, need to kind of live with COVID, but at the same time, at what point do we have to say that you know what, ten thousand people dying from flu or ten thousand people dying from from COVID is just that's not acceptable? Yeah. So my my view on this is you always have to sort of tie it to what would it take to reduce those deaths? And if there are some relatively simple basic things that are not super expensive uh, that we can do to dramatically cut those deaths, then it's a no-brainer. We should just absolutely do those things. And we should not accept deaths that can be readily prevented or you know dramatically reduced. Um, and often this gets framed as well, we didn't, you know, kind of lock down society for flu. Like no one's talking about locking down societies or shutting down schools. Like that's that that's a very high cost thing that you do under very rare circumstances. Um, but, you know, like making sure that everybody who's uh, at elevated risk is really up to date on their vaccines. That feels like something we should invest in. And we should do a lot to try to make sure that people get their vaccines because that will dramatically cut I think making treatments widely available, it's going to be expensive. Some of these treatments can be expensive, but I think like that is not, we do that for lots of other diseases. When we have an effective treatment, we try to make it as available as, as possible. We should absolutely do that. So, and then we've already talked about testing and making testing more widely available and trying to reduce spread. There's a lot that we can do that does not come with a large price tag or a large social cost. And I've always said, like, we will live with COVID. We've been living with COVID for three and a half years. The question isn't, can do you have to live with COVID? The answer is yes. The question is, how do you live with COVID as safely as possible? 
in a way that is sustainable, in a way that's not super disruptive, in a way that is fiscally prudent? And the answer is, there's a lot we can do. We don't have to just accept that we should do nothing and let it run wild. That's unnecessary. It's not how we manage any other infectious disease. It's not what we should be doing. Do you think it's changed the way that we perceive, certainly, as I say, the number of deaths from from flu and other things? It should. It should. Like we, you know, people, it's funny because people often say, should we just treat COVID like flu? And I'm like, we weren't that great at treating flu. Like we, I don't know that that should be our model. We had a lot of flu, but you know, in, at least in the US, the estimate was that 10% of the population got infected with flu every year. 30 to 40,000 people died every year. If we can do some basic things and cut that number in half, like that's great. And by the way, the, the, what I remind people is that the cost, I mean, 30 to 40,000 deaths in the US or 10,000 deaths in the UK is a number that is hard for people to kind of wrap their brains around. Well, what does that mean? And for me, you know, 10,000 deaths means 10,000 families that will not have a grandparent around. That's 10,000 families with kids growing up without a grandparent. Like, why do we think that's just an okay thing, especially when the the interventions are things that we can do to really dramatically cut that down and are not super expensive? Um, we can't talk about living with COVID without talking about prolonged COVID, um, no. of course. And I mean, this is one of the criticisms that, uh, anybody who's been involved with the with the COVID response, including yourself and your and, and your team. Absolutely. Um how do you how do you feel about the way that long COVID has been handled and where we're at with long COVID? I mean a lot of the the, the, the community of patients feel that there's been a lot of callousness around it in the move and the to kind of move on with things. Um it's obviously frustrating that the research has to move pretty slowly. Yes, um, but what's your feeling as a you know as a physician and someone who's been in charge of the response? Yeah, I think we there are several issues under long COVID that get uh, mixed together, and I think we need to really separate. So first and foremost, I, there is clearly a percentage of the population that is living with long COVID that is suffering from long COVID, and what they need, in my mind, is two sets of things. They need. Uh, a system that is supportive of their challenges and research for new therapeutics and new approaches to treating long COVID. Let's come back to that because I feel like that part has, we've made some progress, but it's not gone as fast as possible. Then there is a second issue, which is different, of what is the risk of developing long COVID today? If you are, if you do not have long COVID right now, if you feel well, and then you go out and you get COVID tomorrow, what is the risk that you're going to develop long COVID? And how do we minimize that risk? And that's a different issue than how do we take care of people who already have long COVID. And people, and the reason I think it's really frustrating that people confuse those two is it ends up, uh, I think, actually harming people who have long COVID. So on the, on the second issue first, um, what we know is that given the level of population immunity we have between infections and vaccines, uh, the best data we have suggests that your risk of new long COVID is relatively low. And people have tried to come up with different estimates using actually some of the UK data. And the best estimates that I have seen suggest that new infections, about one out of 100, will lead to, lead to persistent symptoms. And maybe one out of every 500 will lead to really debilitating long-term symptoms. So that's the risk of new long COVID. And, and it's a real risk, but we have to understand it in perspective. And by the way, we've had similar kinds of things for people who've had influenza, people can have persistent symptoms. 
So we need a general strategy that doesn't overhype long COVID, doesn't say that 20% of people who are going to get infected today are going to develop long COVID. It's just, in my mind, not true. Um, and uh, and we need a strategy around kind of trying to drive those numbers. Then go back to the original group of people who already have one. And for them, uh, and we did a lot of work on this in the US government, is we need to make sure that our disability systems, that our healthcare systems are designed to take care of those people. And then if you talk about regrets, one of the things that I think we could have done better and we've got to continue plugging away on is our new research on new treatments for people with long COVID. Um, that is an area where I think we have not gone as fast as we need to. My sense is the UK has not either. And we should not abandon those people and not and stop investing in new treatments for long COVID. So I think as long as we keep these issues separate and don't conflate them, I often talk about how I think the risk of long COVID now is relatively low. And people say you're minimizing the experience of people who have long COVID. No, no, no. Those are separate things. There are people who have long COVID. We got to take care of them the risk of developing long COVID at this moment is reasonably low, and we got to figure out how to continue to drive that risk lower. I wanted to ask you a bit more about antivirals as well, which, I mean, obviously it's been great, of course, as a treatment for, for, for long COVID too. Um, you mentioned you know, your, the, the data on Paxlovid and how you, you were you were quite uh, persuaded by that. How, I mean, where, how, how do you feel about antivirals? Are we putting too much stock in them? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. So here's how I think about this. I mean, look, uh, as a as a physician, whenever I ask myself, should I prescribe treatment X, I have two sets of questions, kind of what's, well, two or three. One is, what do I understand about this disease where I think this treatment should be helpful? What's the clinical evidence? And then what are the costs of these treatments? And I, I don't, I mean, there's a financial cost, but there's also like the side effect, right? So, um, so often we think about, and I will think about like, What's the harm of giving somebody a, a treatment? And no treatment is without harm, but you have to be very kind of thoughtful about like, what is the harm? So let's take a look at uh, antivirals for, for COVID. There tend to be short courses, five to 10 days, right? Um, there's some drug-drug interactions, which is very manageable, but no one I know says, you know, these drugs are incredibly toxic and somehow will cause long-term damage. They will not. We have a lot of experience with drugs like this, we use it for long periods of time for people with HIV um, and literally tens of millions of people around the world, certainly many millions of people in the US have gotten Paxlovid and we have very good evidence that it's really a very, very safe drug for people to take for a short period of time. So you're talking about a drug with a very strong safety profile and then you're saying, well, what's the benefit? Well, we have some really good clinical data and some decent clinical data. And then I always go back to, you know, my friend Tony Fauci, in a conversation I had with him relatively early in my tenure at the White House, he said, Ashish, like, if you have an antiretroviral that's effective, like, why do you want to let the virus kind of run wild? Like, the less time the virus has in your body replicating, the less likely it is to do damage. So if you had a drug that was very toxic, you'd think about it very differently. But a safe drug, widely available. Now, we can talk about whether it's financially worth it. Um, how strong is the clinical data? I think is is good, not great. I mean, we have some randomized trial data, a lot of observational. I put the whole package together, and I think, and some of the observational data suggests it might reduce your risk of long COVID. There's a theoretical basis for that. The data is not overwhelming, but if you start with deep skepticism of treatments, then yes, you may not be persuaded by everything I told you. But I look at it as a risk benefit, and I think the risk of using these treatments is relatively low. 
Um, and I think the benefit is clear for some people and likely for a lot more. And there, that's why I tend to lean towards doing it uh, because I just think the, the risk of, of these treatments is so incredibly low because they're short Are there courses. other treatments that you're uh, excited about? Anything that's as compelling? No, I mean, there's, look, there's other uh, oral antivirals that are in the works, phase three trials happening. Um, you know, one of the treatment uh, modalities that was available for a while, it went away, are monoclonal antibodies. We use them a lot in the US, then they stop working. I have actually pushed for uh, more investments in developing more monoclonals for two sets of reasons. One is there are a certain proportion of people who just can't get oral antivirals. And it, for them, it remains an important option. But more broadly, our national kind of ability to build monoclonals against viruses is a really important capacity capability against future viruses and against future pandemics. So part of my motivation for saying like we should continue working on developing monoclonals is not because I think somehow it'll become this, you know, the widely used therapeutic probably will have a narrow application, but it is a really important capability to have. Um and I mean, we can't talk about treatments without also talking about vaccines. That's another aspect that uh, that everybody speaks of. Um, we're in quite a different position nowadays. You know, it's all Omicron variants that we're kind of worried about. How do you see the kind of the, the situation in terms of access and uptake of vaccines? There's a bit of talk, obviously, at the moment about boosters, getting people to, to take their boosters and so on. Um, and I was talking this morning in one of our meetings about the situation around development of bivalent vaccines, you know, is that as much of a thing now, given that everything is an Omicron variant uh, and so yeah. on? Well, how, how have you felt, you know, now with having a bit more of an overview than I have about this? Yeah, I, I, look, my view on vaccines and COVID vaccines is, I believe it is reasonable, at least for now, I mean, maybe three years, five years, 10 years down the road, it may look different. But at least for now, it is reasonable to think about this the way we think about flu vaccines. And here's why, you know, obviously the virus SARS-CoV-2 is evolving much more rapidly than flu is, and it's not quite as seasonal as flu is. I mean, flu is very seasonal, SARS-CoV-2 is not. But what we know from vaccines, we saw this with bivalent vaccines, I think the new XBB monovalent vaccine that is uh, now available is, it does two sets of things. It clearly gives you a big bump in, in, in your antibodies that helps reduce infections for a period of time. That's not a very long lasting protection. Um, and it's not perfect protection, meaning, but it does reduce your risk of getting infected. And for a lot of people, but particularly high risk people, avoiding infection is a really good idea. Um, so if you're 75 and have chronic lung disease, uh, getting vaccinated may make the difference between life and death, because if you can reduce your infection or if that infection is much shorter lasting, that is gonna make an important difference. You know, you can ask the question, does a 20-year-old need a annual booster? And I think that's a place where uh, the UK and the US have landed in slightly different places. My view is, does a 20-year-old absolutely need an annual COVID shot? No. Are they better off getting it? I believe they are. Um, because if you get it, you're going to have some period of time when you're less likely to be infected. That's good. Like, you're just less likely to disrupt your work, less likely to... You're going to have lower levels of transmission, even if you do get infected. 
There is a little bit of evidence, uh, actually a moderate amount of evidence. If you keep up to date on your vaccines, you're less likely to get long COVID. To the extent that long COVID is either about viral persistence or immune dysregulation, it makes sense that being up to date on your vaccines can help. So there's a set of reasons why even I think young, healthy people are probably better off getting it. That's why I recommend it. Um, but I don't feel super strongly about it. Like for me, the critical thing is people over 65, people over 70, people over 60 really, really need to get that vaccine because that those are the people who are going to benefit in a much, much more meaningful way. And updating it once a year, getting it so that we get through the holiday season, the winter season without uh, a lot of people getting very sick strikes me as a very reasonable thing to be doing for the short period of time. I mean, a big thing affecting that is, of course, you know, the, the availability of the vaccine. So we can't buy them privately. Um, certainly over here, you have to be in a vulnerable group to get sort of assigned it. And what is your your view from, from where you are? Do you, uh, have we still got a bottleneck problem with getting enough of these losers? No, I mean, I, I think it's purely, it's purely financial at this point. Uh, look, um, if... If we wanted 100 million doses of these vaccines over the next two months, we could get them. Uh, both Pfizer and Moderna have capabilities on mRNA. Novavax has been, their manufacturing has been a bit more of a challenge, but you know there are, I mean, a Serum Institute in India can make Novavax vaccines very, very quickly. So then the question is why aren't vaccines widely available? Um, they have become more expensive, at least in the US, we were getting a pretty good price when the US government was buying it. But Congress decided to stop funding it. And so now it's being bought through the private sector. And it's three to four times more expensive. And uh, and I think that's a problem. But that gets to a broader set of issues of how we price pharmaceuticals and how we price uh that's a that you know, that's a that's an important but a different discussion to have. Um but 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 my view, at least in the US, has been that the price should not be the, the determining factor for whether people get access. The real question is, are people better off? And if people are better off getting it, um, then we should work on the price problem, but we should make it as accessible as possible. And I mean, we've spoken a lot about, about flu and, and you know, I know you've spoken about RSV and sort of other things. Um, how, what's your feeling coming in, guys, we go into the sort of winter season this year, uh, how, People are, there's always headlines about twin demics and tri tri triple demics and and so on. How worried are you about this? Um, and you know what, with people worried about the new COVID variants and so on. Yeah. Um, so, I, I think you know last winter we saw flu, COVID, and RSV all rise. Now, what was fortunate was that in general they did not all rise at the same time, so you had a little bit of a spacing out. There's some virological reasons why that might actually happen, that, but there's also entirely possible that you're gonna you're gonna get um, some of these kind of colliding at the rising and peaking at the same time. For me, the big concern and and, I, and my ability to predict are we gonna have a good flu season, a bad flu season? Like, I, I, I can't predict. What I worry about is uh, healthcare capacity four years into the pandemic, uh, the healthcare workforce and how spent they are. Um, and I worry that we will have periods of time, whether it's in the NHS or whether it's in the US, in our health systems, you're gonna have periods of time where it's gonna be hard to access care for people uh, because the healthcare system is, is so overwhelmed with, with the complications of respiratory infections. Uh, obviously, I'm gonna hope that that doesn't happen. Uh, the best way to prevent that is getting lots of people, particularly vulnerable people, uh, to take the flu, RSV and COVID vaccines. 
Um, but we know that that has its own challenges. And I, I always worry that our healthcare system is going to struggle because it struggled before the pandemic. And it is hard for me to imagine that somehow capacity's gotten better or, um, you know, our healthcare workforce is fresh and ready to go. At least that's not my experience. Um, and I mean, one thing that 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 that, that will feed into all of that is um, what we talked about. We talked about costs. A big thing that we cover a lot this year has been cost of living. Um, there's been a lot of stuff about you know the, the changing insurance needs and how much people are able to afford treatments and tests and vaccines and sort of other things. I mean, I'm I'm worried about people avoiding getting treatments and so on because soldiering on because they worried whether they can afford it given the current yeah. economic situation again like from a, from a broader public health perspective how are you feeling about that and the way that you know it's going to be affecting patients seeking treatment or avoiding treatment i i worry a lot about this and there are two sets of thoughts in, the, in this one is you know we have moved at least inside the u.s towards treating covid uh the way we do other things in terms of our regular health system uh our healthcare system is a mess uh it's super complicated it's super expensive, and uh, and we I worried a lot as we were transitioning that we were going to put up real barriers to people getting access to vaccines and treatments. We tried to do a lot of things to reduce those barriers. I mean, we created a whole program for the uninsured so they can get access. Um, you know, people often ask me, they said, well, why are you doing this for COVID when you don't have this for flu and RSV? And I, you know, my somewhat glib answer was, look, I'm the COVID coordinator. I can't solve all the problems, but if I can solve it for COVID, maybe it can become a model for how we do it for other diseases. You can't be paralyzed with, well, you're not doing it for everything, so why do it for anything? Let's just start with what we can do it for. And then maybe we can build on that. So we have an uninsured problem in our country that, that where we need to make progress in a way that you don't in the UK. Um, but, the, but the second part is even for our insured people, they often have large co-pays, there are expenses. And we've got to do everything we can to try to reduce those um, because uh, we know those serve as barriers and therefore people don't end up getting treated. And I actually remind people that if you get treated, your symptoms will resolve faster. You can get back to work faster if that's important to you. You can get kids back to school faster. Uh, if you are if you have symptoms for fewer, I mean, kids don't need the treatments or generally don't get treated, but being vaccinated clearly reduces your symptom period. Uh, that is helpful in terms of letting people live their lives more effectively. So um, there are a lot of good reasons to avail these things, but we in the policy world have to make sure that we are knocking down the barriers as much as possible. And I mean, my last question about the, the U.S. and global health leadership, um, I mean, I saw a good quote from you in another interview about it. Washington should not simply dwell on its lost standing and influence in the arena of global health government. It needs to sort of play a more constructive role. Um Having been now in government and then come out of it back to the, the the role that you were in, how do you feel about the way where the U.S. stands in terms of global health leadership? Yeah, um, so a couple of couple of things on this. Um, you know, if you want to start off, uh, and again, I'm not trying to pat ourselves on the back here, but you know, the last guy who was the president before President Biden uh, pulled us out of WHO. Um, had no global strategy for vaccinations. And uh, and so I think really took America off the stage on terms of uh, global health leadership. And, and obviously the president or this president, President Biden, uh, really turned that around, re-engaged with WHO, um, invested substantially into COVAX, 
gave out more, you know, donated more vaccines. Um, but beyond just, you know, donating more vaccines than anybody else, um, donating a lot of uh, treatments is, I, I, so I think that was all very important. And I think that, that needed to be done. And I'm glad that happened. Uh, it happened before I arrived at the White House and we continued really trying to engage to try to drive uh, improvements in people's access to these things. I think the next phase of leadership is less about what can we donate and how do we donate more than others. It's how do we work with countries to build up capacity so that donation is not the primary mechanism that you need in the future. So here, I think the administration has been very clear, and I and this aligns very well with my views, so I've pushed for this, um, that we need distributed manufacturing. And we need distributed manufacturing uh, on the African continent, in Latin America. Uh, and again, in Asia, you have India and China as ma major manufacturers. Um, but we really need distributed manufacturing. We need a lot more manufacturing capacity. And that it is absolutely essential that for countries like the US and UK and, and philanthropies to, um, to push for those and to make those a sustainable approach. So um, I think the importance of global health leadership at this moment is not done. And in fact, we need to rethink what global health leadership needs to be. And it's much more about partnerships. It's much more, more about capacity building than it is you know, can we just show up with more vaccines next time faster? It's a harder political sell, though, isn't it? And I mean, especially when you're talking with companies that are, you know, economic climate, they're worried totally. about the profit margins and so on. And so we have to think differently, right? So it can't be that let's go build a bunch of manufacturing plants that will sit idle and then maybe one day you have to turn them on. That's not the model. That's just not going to work. So you have to look at what are the needs of countries now? How do you build manufacturing capacity that actually meets those needs? and has the capability of switching to new things if there are new threats. Um, it's a much, much more complicated process. Uh, yes, it requires money, but it requires a lot of other things as well. But that's the hard work that needs to happen next in this field. You've been listening to Ashish Jha talk about the future of the flu season. We'll be back very soon with the start of our Christmas content. We'll be hearing about how to perfect the art of medicine and how the evidence for nature prescribing is improving, plus your usual lot of quirky research. You'll find that and all of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or all other major podcast apps. I'm Monkeet Louie. Thanks for listening.